Welcome to another edition of ABI Podcast. This is Melissa Jacoby. I am the ABI Scholar in Residence for the spring of 2016 and also a professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Today we're talking about successor liability, an issue that plays a very large role in discussions of Chapter 11. Uh, we have a wonderful guest, Michael Reed, a longtime partner and now special counsel at Pepper Hamilton in Philadelphia. And in addition to practicing in the field, he's published articles about these issues at very useful intervals for us in the mid-1990s, in the mid-2000s, and he's also a contributor to an ABI book that's in the works, Bankruptcy and the Environment. Welcome, Mike. Thanks for being here. Melissa, it's uh, an honor and pleasure to uh, be with you. So let's go back to the basics. What do you mean when you say successor liability? Successor liability is an issue that potentially arises when a company engaged in business transfers its assets to another entity. The transferee might be a third-party purchaser or the reorganized debtor under a Chapter 11 plan. Successor liability refers to the potential liability of the transferee for any debts or liabilities of the seller that remain unpaid after the sale. Those debts and liabilities might be ordinary debts, such as unpaid trade or contractual claims, or more sophisticated liabilities, such as so-called future tort claims or liabilities for environmental contamination. The general rule is that an asset purchaser does not incur liability for the debts of the seller solely by reason of the fact that it acquired the assets. I refer to this general principle as the rule of non-assumption of debt. Successor liability refers to an exception to that general rule. Successor liability can be imposed by statute or under common law. The four general, generally recognized bases for successor liability under the common law are, one, where the purchaser agrees to assume the seller's debts, two, where the transaction amounts to what's called a consolidation or a de facto merger, uh, three, where the purchaser is deemed a mere continuation of the seller, or four, where the transaction is fraudulent uh, in an attempt to escape liability. So in a bankruptcy context, the goal then for all parties involved is to to know what the baseline is. They have to know what state law otherwise would have provided and then see if they are changing that result. Assuming that you're talking about state law, successor liability can also be imposed under federal statutes. Okay, so under applicable non-bankruptcy law then. Mm -hmm. So right. we'd look to those sources to see if there's even a possibility of successor liability in the first place. Those are the sources we'd look before we even get to the bankruptcy question. Right. So what prompted you to start writing articles on successor liability and bankruptcy? I'm sure you were encountering it a lot in your practice, but many people encounter things in their practice and don't write scholarly articles. So, Well, as you know, I've written and published a lot of articles throughout yes. my career. Um, during the 1980s, I became involved in Chapter 11 cases that dealt with environmental and mass torts, uh, tort claims. I also became active in the Business Bankruptcy Committee of the ABA section of business law, where I chaired a subcommittee focused on mass tort and environmental claims. It became apparent to me that selling assets as opposed to the traditional reorganization model uh, was going to be a growing trend in Chapter 11 cases. And I believe that to make that work, 
the issue of successor liability would have to be addressed, although, of course, uh, successor liability can be an issue under the more traditional reorganization model. So I thought that that would be an interesting topic to write about. Well, and it certainly has only seemed to grow in, in significance as we've moved along, especially as 363 sales are on the, on the rise. So you mentioned environmental, you mentioned mass tort, uh, and is it really those in combination with 363 sales where we should be most ready for these questions to arise? Well, you know, I think that um, uh, there are a number of uh, factors that one might look at to see whether there's a risk of successor liability. Um, so, for example, is, is the uh, seller engaged in a business? Obviously, that would be a factor. What's the financial condition of the seller? Is the seller insolvent? Uh, is the seller going out of business? Um, is there going to be a seller, uh, a going concern uh, uh, left over after the sale occurs um, and the buyer acquires the assets um, so that uh, creditors of the seller would have recourse against the seller? Um, is the purchaser acquiring all or a substantial portion of the seller's operating business? Um, is the purchaser going to use the same management, employees, locations, the same name as the seller uh, when the purchaser acquires the business? So, so those are some of the factors that you would look at to determine whether um, there is a risk of successor liability. Successor liability can arise in high-profile cases like the General Motors bankruptcy where there's ongoing litigation right now uh, over successor liability. But it can also arise in more ordinary cases uh, where a financially troubled seller transfers its assets to a buyer leaving unpaid trade claims. Sure. So it's a really wide range of cases that are affected, it seems. And yeah, it's not just a big claim issue. I'm sorry, a big case issue. Sure. And I mean, certainly we also, especially given the prevalence of 363 sales, even in, in cases of a, of a smaller size, one could see how the two two could collide. Uh, so you mentioned you've been thinking and working on this at least since the 80s. Can you characterize sort of, in, in, if we take the long view, of some particularly notable changes as we move sort of from decade to decade and we'll go up to the present? Yeah, I, I think I st stuck my toe in the water in the 1980s, but I I got into, I jumped into the pool in the 1990s. Um, and um, so I, I, it's, it's interesting on an interesting, on a, on a uh, uh, decade by decade basis, I think you can, when, as I look back over what's happened since the 1990s, I think there's some trends. When I published my first article in The Business Lawyer um, during the 1990s, the mid-1990s, the ability of an asset purchaser to acquire property from the seller in a bankruptcy sale free and clear of successor liability was still somewhat uncertain in my view. Um, by the mid-2000s, mid when I published my second Business Lawyer article, the case law at the Federal Court of Appeals level began to make it clear that in a properly structured bankruptcy sale or Chapter 11 reorganization, assets could be sold free and clear of successor liability. The most notable decisions were the Fourth Circuit's 1996 decision in a case called Lecky Smoke, Smokeless, that's L-E-C-K-I-E, -E, Smokeless, involving coal companies, and the Third Circuit's 2003 decision in TWA involving an airline. 
Since then, the most prominent decisions on successor liability arising out of the General Motors and Chrysler bankruptcy cases have continued to follow the precedents established by the Fourth Circuit uh, and the Third Circuit uh, in those earlier cases. So it's interesting in that I suppose it depends on one's perspective how one views these cases. Uh, when I teach the cases like Leckie or TWA, the students have a lot of concerns about the impact uh, on, of course, on of course the claimants in those cases, and yet we do see, as you said, the 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 case law seems to continue to go the direction that claims of all sorts can be relieved in a in a 363 sale uh, over objections and taking us where we are today. So, I mean, one question that comes up that's really the flip side is. Are, is there a mechanism to adequately address the liabilities that have been incurred? We see in the mass tort cases, channeling injunctions and representatives and the like. Uh, and then we see that the old the old co has some adequate funding to at least partially compensate the, the plaintiffs, but that's not always true. Uh, do you see changes on that side of the equation as well? Better efforts to make sure that the procedures look fair and that there's compensation set mechanism set up? I'm not surprised to hear that your students express concern and sympathy for the claimants, especially those who hold personal injury or wrongful death claims. Using a bankruptcy sale to cleanse assets while innocent personal injury claimants are left without a remedy doesn't seem right. I think that's why in the GM case, after the motion to sell the debtor's assets was filed, the asset purchase agreement was modified to provide that the purchaser, new GM, would assume responsibility for any accident claims involving death, personal injury, or property damage occurring after the asset sale, including any that might have resulted from the infamous ignition switch defects in vehicles manufactured prior to the sale. Nevertheless, new GM was generally shielded from successor liability. As you've noted, in the mass tort context, special measures are usually taken to assure that constitutionally adequate notice is afforded to potential claimants. This will involve advertising and may require the appointment of a future claims representative. In addition, special mechanisms such as a trust fund and or insurance uh, may be employed to provide sources of recovery for such claimants. With regard to environmental liability, a 1991 decision by the Second Circuit in a case called In Re Chateau Gay Corp. held that liability for ongoing pollution created by the debtor cannot be discharged under the bankruptcy code, leaving a successor potentially liable. I was involved in that case, which arose out of the first LTV steel bankruptcy. As a result of that decision and its progeny, environmental agencies often insist that special measures be taken by the parties to provide funding for the remediation of assets on which there is ongoing pollution generated by the debtor, often by establishing trust funds. And, of course, where the purchaser acquires assets, on which contamination created by the seller remains, the purchaser will have liability to address such contamination as the current owner or operator of the property 
without regard to the doctrine of successor liability. It does seem that environmental contexts raise more difficult issues because, at least with some of the mass tort cases, the product is no longer produced, uh, and perhaps one knows who, who has been exposed to it, not always. But uh, environmental has this, as you say, a continuing continuing obligations. Um, have you seen any trends there and how that's gotten taken care of since Chateaugay? Um Yeah, I think, well, first of all, um, as is true in, in cases involving uh, collective bargaining, where we have sections 1113 and 1114 uh, specifically addressing those uh, those areas, um, um, cases involving environmental contamination um, bring uh, t- uh, co- uh, uh, involve a collision between two important federally recognized public policies. One, on the one hand, the benefit of reorganizing financially distressed enterprises. And on the other hand, the importance of protecting the environment and providing for sources of funding for that uh, protection. Um, I think that um, there's a general appreciation on the part of bankruptcy courts uh, that the um, public policy of protecting the environment is an important one. And bankruptcy courts, I think, are increasingly vigilant to assure that, uh, even in the sale context, where possible appropriate measures are taken, such as through trust funds, um, to uh, assure that uh, uh, adequate resources or uh, resources that are as adequate as are practically possible um, are available to um, to, to fund future remediation of any property that the debtor has contaminated. Bankruptcy courts do not want to preside over reorganizations um, that appear to permit companies that have contaminated property to escape liability for that and for a purchaser to acquire the business without making adequate um, provision for environmental remediation. Sure, and there are plenty of current cases, I suppose, where people will be watching to see how that all gets worked out. So, so far we've been talking about the group of plaintiffs, although as you mentioned, it might just be uh, a smaller number uh, of presumably unsecured creditors uh, versus sort of the debtor or the successor to the debtor, the buyer. Uh, The conventional wisdom about companies going into Chapter 11 now is that they are dominated uh, or their assets are dominated by a, by a secured creditor, that all their assets have a, have a lien on them or security interest on them, and that there, there isn't any unencumbered value. Now, putting aside whether that is always true or whether that should be true, uh, how has that changed the leverage of all the parties in these in these cases, uh, when you have the kinds of claimants who are even more likely than to want to look to the buyer uh, because they're less likely to get anything from the bankrupt seller? Uh, Melissa, I honestly have to tell you that I don't know that I, it, during my career, which goes back a few years, 
that I've seen a significant change on this issue. Um, since I started practicing bankruptcy law during the early 1970s, um, it's been my experience that by the time a financially troubled company ends up in bankruptcy, its lenders have taken security interest in all or substantially all of its assets. Uh, whether the case involves an asset sale or a reorganization, the successor liability battle is not so much a fight over the existing bricks and mortar of the company, but rather a battle over the future revenues of the reorganized enterprise. Indeed, one of the policy objections often made to the imposition of successor liability is that it has the effect of elevating what would otherwise be general unsecured claims against the debtor that are so-called out of the money, uh, to elevating those to the status of 100% claims against the putative successor. So I guess what I would say to you is that um, you, 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 you make a valid observation. I just don't know when I look at uh, what's, what used to be the case 30 or 40 years ago uh, and, and what's the case today. I don't know that the, 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 the presence of liens on all or, or substantially all of the debtor's assets is, is a scenario that's that different today than it used to be. Fair enough. So we have a new batch of cold cases that's renewing interest in successor liability questions, environmental liability questions. Uh, and I, I'm not presuming you're involved with those cases, but ra and rather asking in terms of your longer uh, view of, of examining these issues in a scholarly way over time, whether there are certain takeaways or, or ideas you would offer for newer lawyers to this area? Well, Melissa, um, I don't know whether I should say regrettably, but I am not currently involved in any of those coal company cases. I have had some involvement in such uh, cases in the past. Um, but the, uh, the current spate of coal company bankruptcies is likely to give rise to successor liability disputes. Um, in coal industry cases, the issue of successor liability can come up in a number of ways, and, and there, there are two particular ways that I want to note. First, um, collective bargaining agreements often have clauses that impose liability upon a successor employer for any unpaid obligations of the predecessor. Uh, second, successor liability claims are also likely to be asserted under uh, a statute, federal statute called the Coal Act, uh, which is uh, a statute that provides for health and death benefits for coal industry retirees and imposes liability upon any quote, successor in interest, unquote, of a uh, operator that, that shuts down uh, for premiums to be paid to a benefit fund or a benefit plan established under the Act. In a, in a case called Walter Energy, uh, a Chapter 11 case that's presently pending in the Northern District of Alabama, uh, a federal district court uh, recently held that the debtor's liability for premiums under the Coal Act our interest in property uh, within the meaning of Section 363F of the Bankruptcy Code, and the debtor's assets can be sold uh, pursuant to Section 363 sale, free and clear of those interests. Uh, the court followed uh, the Fourth Circuit's similar holdings uh, uh, in uh, in the Leckie Smokeless case back uh, in 1990, which was uh, handed down in 1996. These, these can be complex and difficult issues. Um, however, 
attorneys uh, that are involved in these cases today will, are not going to be writing on a blank slate. Um, I recommend that they uh, study the most um, significant published decisions on the issues and avail themselves of resources that we didn't have in, in the mid-1990s, which is uh, the vast uh, library of, uh, uh, of documents, pleadings, and agreements uh, uh, that are now available through as a result of electronic filing uh, that they can utilize to, uh, to, you know, to look for forms and, and other resources that can be helpful. Of course, as always, um, it, it is wise for attorneys uh, involved in cases uh, that have not had experience, prior experience, to consult with practitioners who have had experience with these issues. Let's talk for a minute about statutory reform. Uh, again, it depends where one sits, whether these cases are fair, unfair, advancing welfare, not advancing welfare. Um, from your experience, do you think the code sets the balance about right? Well, first of all, when we talk about the word, when we uh, one of the things that I, it's it's often um, uh, uh, made me laugh over the years is is Congress's love of the term reform. <laughs> uh, whenever you know, tax reform act, the bankruptcy, all kinds of bankruptcy reform. Every every new. Uh, uh, you know, embellishment on 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 comprehensive statutes like the Internal Revenue Code, or the uh, the Bankruptcy Code, or many of them are are characterized as reforms. Um, and I know that uh, you and uh, Senator Warren, uh, 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 a couple decades ago, were a part of a commission whose uh, who, whose aspirations were that there would be uh, reforms to the uh, Bankruptcy Code. Uh, resulting from its its excellent work. Um, so, uh, getting back to the question you asked me, which is, um, do I think that the current? I, th I would say that the current that the, the way the current law is 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 being played out in the cases probably is pretty much in balance. But I, for a long time, have believed that um, there might be some benefit um, in uh, having uh, Sections 363 and 1141 of the Code amended uh, to expressly provide that a bankruptcy estate can transfer its assets free and clear of claims, um, including successor liability claims, provided that proper notice is given and, where appropriate, special provisions are made for such things as future claims and the remediation of ongoing environmental contamination. So the, the, the balance would be struck there between clearing up what is not clear in today's code that the, the courts have tried to read into 363F, but that would come with a price that was expressly set forth. So I don't know whether I have actually in my career represented environmental authorities on occasion, and uh, they might applaud if if greater clarity could be brought uh, to the what seems to be generally recognized by the courts that you that in, for certain types of claims um, there needs to be uh, such as future claims, future tort claims, 
um, and uh, ongoing environmental liability, uh, there need to be special measures taken as kind of a price for uh, dispensing with successor liability. Um, you you kind of see, at least with regard to the future tort claims, you see that that balance struck in the Manville amendments uh, that were put in, I believe, in 1994, where you had that those amendments specifically uh, authorized a reorganization involving uh, asbestos uh, liability uh, that would expressly uh, deal with uh, successor liability. Uh, but it also uh, there also it was also required that mirroring, mirroring what happened in Manville, uh, there be special provisions made for um, you know a representative to represent the interests of future claimants and uh, special provisions made for um, the uh, payment of future claimants. So so Congress actually has already recognized that that balance. It needs to be made in some cases. Yeah, so we have the model for asbestos, and then the question is, what does it do for, for everybody else? Uh, I know it wasn't supposed to have the negative implication, but at least... But yeah, well, well I, I guess my point is that where Congress chose to intervene statutorily, um, it struck a balance. It, 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 Congress knew how to write clearly that you could deal, you could get rid of special uh, successor liability, uh, as um, a 524G um, does uh, do that. Um, but um, but it also uh, recognized that special uh, provisions needed to be made for uh, people who could be particularly disadvantaged. Uh, by clearly cutting off successor liability. The battle that's going on in GM right now um, could be characterized as uh, the court struggling to uh, arrive at the appropriate balance um, in the absence of a statutory framework that was imposed by um, by the Congress, as in the case of asbestos bankruptcies. So you've mentioned the role of the courts here just now, and then uh, and then earlier talking about we're very lucky in the bankruptcy world to have a merit selected bankruptcy bench and the judges very carefully dealing with the issues before them. Are there there techniques that you've seen that you think have worked particularly well in dealing with with these issues that you'd like to emphasize as we close out? What I would say uh, is that given the speed with which many Chapter 11 cases now proceed through comprehensive first-day orders and quick sales of assets, um, bankruptcy courts should be vigilant to assure that in cases where there is a possibility of successor liability, um, adequate notice is given to all potentially affected parties. Uh, now, this may be more easily said than done, especially where you have the possibility of future claims. Um, as I've noted, the current controversy in GM demonstrates the disadvantages to which the holders of uh, tort claims may be put where the case is moving very rapidly. Um, I would, I would uh, commend to interested um, readers uh, Judge Gerber's decisions in the GM bankruptcy case, which I think contain interesting analyses and discussion of the extent to which 
the interests of certain constituencies, such as tort claimants, can be adequately represented in the early stages of a major reorganization case where many of the important decisions are being made. So I want to thank you, Michael Reed, for, for joining me today. It's such a pleasure to have you here. It was a pleasure to be with you, Melissa. And I'd like to uh, recommend to the listeners to read Mike's scholarship in this area. I always learn a lot from it, and especially the way that it does track sort of the changes over over time and the evolving landscape. And I'm looking forward to the chapter in the, the forthcoming book as well. And I'd like to especially thank listeners because this is my last podcast of my scholar-in-residence gig at the ABI for spring 2016. So it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.